today we're going to talk about uh is the Bible a good book? Is it really a good book? Because some of it seems morally troubling. Now, I want to remind you, if you're new to this class, um, this is such an important subject today with regard to talking to people as, uh, about uh, whether the Bible is going to be a guidebook for your life. I actually put an extended section of this on the front end of one of my most popular talks here in Southwest Florida, which is 10 Reasons to Believe the Bible is actually not just inspirational, but authored by a divine being through human agency. Um, the, the, the 10 reasons for that was one of the most requested copies of, it, of it a Wednesday night talk. Uh, I've done it at a couple of schools, but what we did instead is we, did, we redid it in here. We've done it twice in here. And on the front end of that, I put, okay, but what about your kids or your grandkids' internet interaction with the word of God? What does that look like? And if you don't understand where they're coming from with that, they, you may say something at the dinner table or in the car, but what they get online is going to look really, really different. Um, so I wanted, the reason I wanted to be clear on this is this is a woefully inadequate talk for this subject right now. Um, we're going to talk about three things in particular, but I wanted to intro by saying we're in a different world. I can remember coming up and my dad being really upset that on the show, I don't know if you remember... Um, Murphy Brown, the show was one of the, it was a new show when uh, Bush was president, Dan Quayle was his vice president, we've come a long way since then, uh, there was moral outrage because Dan Quayle dared to say that, he goes, I enjoy the, the witty writing of a Murphy Brown, but I'm, uh, I give, now listen to this, without even referencing the Bible, he's a Christian, Dan Quayle is a Christian, he got crucified for this, he said, I think that Murphy Brown valorizes single motherhood, makes, makes it a, a valiant acceptable in other words he goes it goes counter all the available data that we gathered for the last 40 years on on single mother and you remember murphy brown she was a, a top end new york i believe executive with a, literally a baby carrier on the front of her because she you know gotten uh, pregnant had a child out of wedlock so dan brown got crucified for that well, we're a long way from that we're now there's a an odd place in culture where we're at the yolo you only live once uh, which is just carpe diem for idiots, and then uh, seize the day for idiots, and then uh, it, it's usually just to justify bad behavior. Um, but we're also at a place where it's you do you, which is kind of another way of saying you create your moral convictions and follow them on a day-by-day -day basis, which is called moral relativism. But we also are in a place where the Bible is seen to be morally unacceptable. It is a book that contains content that's morally unacceptable. There's ways to categorize challenges to the Bible, but I can remember in my 20s and 30s, it was more about the consistency and contradictions in it, right? Well, what do we do with these differences in these accounts, say, between the Gospels or these difficult passages between the Old and the New Testament? You know, and some of them were really kind of clumsy uh, contradictions that didn't take into it, it only take a, a, a quick study in context, like the you know there's lex talionis in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, and then turn the other cheek in the New. See, you got a contradictory Bible. So some were easy to deal with, some were a little bit more difficult. But that doesn't seem to be the issue anymore. The issue now is the morality of the Bible more than the historicity of it. Sure, there's still people online that go after the historicity and the, and the consistency and contradiction. But now there's a moral outrage about it. The Bible's not seen as a as a morally good book. Any comment on that wave? Yeah, so not only is, uh, do we have people who are claiming on their side of the coin that uh, there is no you know, standard across the board morality that we can um, uh, appeal to, 
but we've also got those same people, you know, you make up your own deal, uh, now weighing in and saying, well, but the Bible's version of morality, their stories in the Bible are totally not legitimate. Uh, we've also got a group of people, a, a large, maybe, maybe majority of our society saying multiculturalism, we should be able to embrace every culture as being equally legitimate. And so my question would be, can't we throw the Bible into that mix as well? Because it's from a different time, from a different place, uh, from a different groups of ethnic individuals involved and a situation that they should be able to easily grandfather into that overarching worldview of all uh, uh, cultural expressions are legitimate. And so why not? Let's just throw the Bible in, the more the merrier. Y'all hear that? That's a challenge right there. He's take take a cultural truism. All cultures are legitimate through time, contemporary cultures as well as ancient cultures. Now they don't really believe that. Just like they don't believe morality is subjective and per person, they don't. The, you know how you know that? The minute you violate them, they want to appeal to something exactly. outside of the both of you. But what Wave's saying is, well, why can't we apply that to the Bible? So, for example, somebody comes and says, you know, I can't read your Bible because that bride price thing in there, oppression of women. We're going to talk about that in a second. Well, wait a second. I thought all cultures had value that we can't see and are equally valuable. Why can't we apply that to ancient Israel or the ancient Canaanite culture? Do you see what he's saying? Now, again, we're not going that way, but that's what's called a, in, in, in argumentation a reductio ad absurdum, where you assume the opponent's position on something and show them they haven't thought it through and haven't gotten to a consistency on it. So it's a, it's a, it's a subtle move, but it's a way to keep the conversation going for sure. So I, I also wanted you to note that because we, accordion, we did an accordion out on each one of these subjects and gave it the time, the time necessary to it, including a bibliography for each of these subjects, um, just know this is, again, this is just going to, it's not, you're not going to leave here and wipe your hands off and go, well, there you go. I don't have to worry about, you know, um, we're going to center on three things. But before we get there, I just wanted to say the, the main ways the online world discredits the Bible are three. Okay, right now. These are the main ways. If you took into account uh, almost, almost every website and their critique of the Bible, it's this. The first one is this. Let's highlight odd and eccentric passages uh, you know, boiling a, a goat in its mother's milk and show you how ridiculous it would be to try to apply this since these things are in here. I mean, are you boiling a, a goat in its mother's milk? So they find these eccentric passages that aren't preached upon. They seize upon them and try to shame someone into, you know, why would you ever use the Bible if you're not, you know, going to do some of the things it, it says in there? The second thing they do is they, they seize upon the miraculous. And because miracles are rare, they say, how can you believe this? This is basically mythology. So if you believe that God can intervene and break in and, and, and suspend the natural course of events for a higher purpose and for a message to his people, that's, that's something that means you're probably prone to mythology and you're not a naive, gullible person. You know, akin to some of the ancients, that chronological snobbery that thought, you know, that gods were fighting during a thunderstorm, you know, up because of the, the sound thunder was making. And the last um, is just the morally reprehensible. That's what we're going to talk about today. That the Bible has morally objectionable content in it, so you should not hold it up as a guidebook. Okay? Uh, we've also talked about the consistency objection. If you're going to do one, why don't you do all of it? And we talked about how the Bible actually encourages you at points to cherry pick. Given covenants, uh, it doesn't mean illegitimately cherry pick. It just means that certain things, certain covenants get abrogated, certain covenants get completed, things like that. The Bible also contains prescriptive and descriptive elements. We've talked about this a number of times in here. That means there's times the Bible's describing what happened, 
most of the time what to avoid, and other times what you should emulate and copy. Take David as the paradigm example, a man after God's own heart. God uses him in a brave situation against a big foe, but you don't emulate him when it comes to Bathsheba. Comment? <laughs> I think the Bible is really cool. Um, that's kind of general comment, but uh, more specifically, it, it's so neat because it's different from every other collection of ancient sacred literature in that uh, it tells the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of its characters. It doesn't whitewash anybody. Uh, it, it also doesn't approve of that kind of behavior. That, what David did was very much disapproved of. He, he was judged because of it. He's also restored eventually. So you get, the, you get this you know, even-handed proper judgment, but also uh, a restoration from a God who's merciful and forgiving. So uh, the Bible is indeed unique. You're not going to find this stuff in the Book of Mormon uh, and the like because the Bible is just like that. It just tells the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Every time I think of that, its stock goes up in my mind. So just remember, the easy way to remember is this. Online, the Bible is presented generally by skeptics as strange, naive, and gullible, and because you, know, you believe in the supernatural, and then violent, morally unacceptable. So we're going to talk about three of the main thrust with the unacceptably violent, uh, quote, Bible uh, today. We're going to talk about genocide. Uh, the, you know, th this would be the, uh, the, the clearing of the land, as it were, uh, with uh, as one of the uh, aspects of divine judgment uh, when the people of Israel come into Canaan. Uh, the second we're going to talk about slavery, maybe the biggest touchstone subject out there right now. You have a Bible that's pro-slavery, end of discussion. End of discussion. Do not bring that Bible out to help you help guide public policy. Do not, are you kidding me? That's retrograde. We're going to talk about that. And then last, doesn't it, doesn't it oppress women? Doesn't it give you a context to oppress women? Bride price in the Old Testament, women, wives submit to your husbands in the New. All right. So we're going to talk now again. I, I think these are worthy of sustained study for you, and we have done this before in this class and accordion these out. Um, but th don't expect today to get all of that situated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they claim it's biblical too. Uh, no, I, I'm going to go. Can we? I want to address it now so I don't forget. Uh, polygamy is universally across the Bible shown negatively. <laughs> Across the word of God, God, uh, for, for example, um, when God's warning the people of Israel about uh, wanting a king like the pagans right after the judges, he's like, they're going to one of the warnings is that he's going to make wives and concubines of your daughters. Um, God, the creational paradigm was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve, Ava and Elaine. Uh, it, uh, across the board, polygamy gets people it, 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 it gets people in trouble over and over and over again. Um, it was something that was common in the ancient world, um, yeah, but it is the Bible it, it looks polygamy looks like one of those sinful context accommodations for the hardness of people's hearts, not something God approves of, not something that he says is a-okay. Again, he warns the people of Israel that they're going to imitate you're going to want kings. Here's the downside. Your sons are going to go to into a battle they didn't pick with people they don't know, strangers. It, their lives will be in jeopardy. Your daughters will be just another one on the on the king's list, that sort of thing. Um, any comment on polygamy in the Word of God, Wave? I, I, I just would say this. It's universally, it's not the paradigm example in the new or, or the old. It's, a, it's one of those things that, that it's, it's something that the, co that the culture does, but it's not something the Bible presents positively ever. It's presented as a negative nearly every time it's brought up. 
So what do you, one of the things that you see is a common theme in the Bible is that God is constantly condescending to meet human beings, yes. fallen, frail, yes. imperfect human beings right where they are. And then he begins moving them and taking them to where he wants them to be. And so one of the things that you find about polygamy, even though it's practiced everywhere, largely because there's so much war and there, uh, this is kind of a... I don't know, a social anthropological conclusion I've come to looking at the ancient literature is that there's so much war, so much killing, and it's almost always involving the men first, yeah. um, that there aren't, aren't that many men. And so you've got, you know, women who are actually wanting to attach themselves to the, the same guy because there just aren't enough available guys. True. Another thing is that it is often attached to, the, to royalty and to people who are in patriarchal positions and the like because um, the, that guy has got to produce enough male heirs to, you know, run the army, run the bureaucracy, and to succeed him after he's gone. So it's kind of a, it's a societal, it's meeting some sort of a societal need. But as Joe said, there are constant indications in the Bible, like you can't marry someone's sister. That's, that's out of hand. You can't marry someone's um, uh, mother or, or, or daughter. That's, that's out of hand. Um, the, uh, the priests even more uh, strict. And so what you're seeing, even in the Bible, you're seeing at that, at that most uh, primitive level of Scripture that he has, God has already, through the law of Moses, elevated Israelite society yes. as compared to everybody yes. else around. Every other law code, every other uh, group uh, of um, individuals in the ancient Near East. So you find this, uh, you find this in terms of, I'm just going to jump ahead real quick, in terms of treatment of slaves. They're much higher than the, the Egyptian or the Mesopotamian uh, law, law codes. Um, in dealing with uh, the conquered groups, much higher level of uh, ethical responsibility demanded by God of the Israelites than anybody else in that world. And so really it's, it's, a, it's appropriate to compare where are they at developmentally at whatever point you're reading in the Bible with what's going on in the surrounding culture. And God is constantly moving his people to a higher plane and they're always setting the, cur the learning curve. God's never at the same place or behind. He's always ahead, irrespective of which developmental level in the Bible that you inject yourself into the narrative. You're going to find that, if you will, but compare apples with apples. Um, yeah. They don't have a UN, you know, maybe thank God, yeah. um, <laughs> or UN peacekeeping forces. Uh, and that sort of thing, but they are where they are, and they're always a cut above, or at least that's what God is demanding of his people. I'll jump ahead to oppression of women, too. Uh, they could have gone and just said, hey, God's cool with, when the, when the new Christians are, are making their way in Rome through persecution, hardship, it could have made it a lot easier on them to go, oh, yeah, God's cool with this accommodation for this development called polygamy. You know, it was allowed, at least from our perspective, for kings and people back then, you know, even our father, Father Abraham, this sort of thing. They didn't. Uh, no concubines, no the wife, this sort of thing. It was, it was one man, one wife. The creational paradigm was re reaffirmed there when they could have made it a lot easier on themselves, a lot easier to just say polygamy is good, concubinage is good, even male, you know, head of the household, patriarchal prostitution yeah. is good too. So, um, so yeah, jumping ahead there, yeah, go ahead. Just since we're jumping ahead, yeah. and I've got to go back to, to first service yes. at the, for the conclusion of yes. it, I want to I talk about bride price. Yeah. 
Uh, bride price is a, a misnomer. I, in, in my p opinion, it's the, the, the term is yes. not descriptive of the reality. And so what is actually going on, it's a dowry. And a dowry then becomes a protection for the woman against unnecessary divorce. Hey, yes. if you end up divorcing me, this big sum of money is going to have to be given. So it, it's curbing this, well, you know, like in, um, uh, in Islam, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and that's the end of it, you're done. Um, th the other thing is that this, th this um, bride price, bride price, it actually goes to her. Yes. If something goes, sideways in the marriage this goes to support her because she becomes one of the vulnerable and you'll find that in uh, the from the law of Moses onward that uh, God in dealing with his you know people group that are representing him there'll always be a, be a cut above you don't find this going on in Egypt or Mesopotamia and this is a uh, this is a shock absorber this is a buffer zone intended to protect the woman who is in the class classification of the vulnerable should some divorce situation take place. Yeah, she can't just go get a job somewhere else. That's probably one of the weirdest things you see online is if they say bride price, that makes it sound like a piece of property objectionable but automatically. She's being bought. Yeah, like she's being bought. Just like somebody would confuse a dowry today, if we can do that with a contemporary issue in India, that, that, that's not what the purpose is to buy the... Um, it, it is a protection thing, and it certainly was in the ancient world. Also, don't lose the point he said before, too, about a conquest scenario. This is one of those, um, it was conquer, annex, in the ancient world, that was the norm across the board. Um, so you do, you're going to have a lot, lot less males uh, on the board, as it were. Um, okay. Can, I, can yeah. I address oh, gosh, the, yes. the go, issue go, go. of genocide? Go ahead, because we're going to right now. Jumping yeah, ahead. go ahead on down, but, Ethan. Go ahead and get the whole slide, but go ahead. But go I've ahead. got to, I, I'm yeah. going to have to go to, okay. uh, for yeah. back to the end of first service. Yeah. I have a, um, <clears throat> I wrote somewhat of, a, of an article. It hasn't, has never been published yet, but um, I can make it available to you, and they can We'd, make it available to them. But it yes. has to do with this issue of genocide in the Bible. And the reality of it is 400 years before the invasion of Joshua, you have a, an, uh, a Canaanite society made up of the seven nations of the Amorites that you hear in the Bible, and God has already pronounced judgment on them. In fact, he's already given a shot over the bow about what he thinks about that culture with the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So they've been given the examples of Melchizedek and Balaam and Job and Abraham and his sons and the situation of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is just constantly mind, rem, reminding this society Canaanite society, you're in huge trouble. Why? Because I've sent you all of these representatives, these spokespersons for me, these people who are living the way that I've called them to live, and you're not responding. You're rejecting, marginalizing them. And so 400 years go by. That's, that's a pretty patient God. And then he says, I'm going to bring the curtain down. But I want to mention to you that there are three very narrowly circumscribed restrictions on geno genocide, as we understand it, as you're just wiping out whole cultures or you're just wiping out whole people groups. Well, 
first of all, this is chronologically limited. It's only in the, the lifetime, that last period of Joshua's life. After that, you don't hear about complete annihilation anymore. Another is that it's only within the land of Israel, despite the fact that you've got people who are Hittites and people who are from Mari, Amorites, uh, and they're living outside. They're, they're foreigners to this world, and they've perverted the culture. They're not told, go up to Mari and kill all of the Amorites, the Mariites up there, or to hit to Hatiland and kill all of the Hittites. It's only that group of people, Hittites, Amorites, etc., that are living in the land of Israel. So you've got chronological limitation. You've also got uh, geographical limitation. And you've also got ethnic limitation. It's not you know what, you guys are all so awesome in this place. It's us four no more. So if, if you find non-Israelites, anybody that's a non-Israelite, just wax on, wax off, right? Yeah. I mean, just have at them. Yes. It's not the way God rolls. It's the seven nations of the Amorites all living outside of their prescribed in Genesis 10 place of, uh, of in inhabitation. And it's only those people living in the land of Israel. And it's only these seven nations, by the way, the groups of people who caused the most trouble to ancient Israel, the Philistines, help me out here, mm -hmm. not on the list. Mm. Mm. The Phoenicians, you know, that Ahab married Jezebel, a Phoenician princess, and caused all kinds of Baal worship that then caused the destruction of the northern kingdom. The Phoenicians are not on the list. The Arameans, where we get the word Aramaic, the Arameans, it's Syria and Damascus today, okay? The Arameans, they were invading Israel, destroying crops, taking it with them, taking prisoners with them, oppressing people. The Arameans are also not on the list. So the three major people groups that you would think they would be on the top of the list aren't even on the list. So then what's going on? It's this culture that had been condemned for 400 years. God said, I'm not giving Abraham, I'm not giving you this land, I'm giving you the, the, your descendants this land. So for 400 years, God bore with these people. Finally, like with any culture, like with, with ancient Rome, just to pick another, it was brought down. It was brought down by implosion from within. But make no mistake, there was judgment on Rome. You hear about it in the book of Revelation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, right? Uh, and so God will use one people group to bring judgment on another people group. And the ancient Israelites are not outside that circle. Judgment was brought on them by the Assyrians. Judgment was brought on them again by the Babylonians. So they're not exempt. So God is an equal opportunity offender. I just find this whole argument about genocide in the Bible to be specious. He used the Israelites as his agents of judgment against the seven nations of the Amorites in ways no different than how he used the Assyrians on Israel, the Babylonians on Israel, even to some degree the Persians and even the Greeks uh, on Israel. By the way, every bit of that prophesied before it ever happened. So God's in control. We belong to him. The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, and all of we who dwell therein. That includes pagans, that includes believers. So we belong to God. 
And he waits and he's patient, and he's merciful and he's reaching out and he's trying to get people to turn, turn. And then when uh, the number comes up and the curtain comes down, then everybody wants to complain about it. I find that we have nothing to complain about. Mm. I got to go, y'all. All right. Love yeah, you. for sure. See you in August or September, okay? Absolutely. I guess we'll shut it down, talk a little bit more about Furtick. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> totally kidding. No, a couple talking points uh, to pull from it. Again, the best way to do this is think about ways you could frame these in questions. Remember, we talked about how evangelism is best done like the master did it, Jesus, uh, compared to just overt statements of truth. He was three times more likely to ask a question like a good rabbi. Okay, so uh, some of the things to remember is God's an equal opportunity judger. God's also an equal opportunity engager of forgiveness on a mass scale. Remember the Jebusites, the Ninevites? He offered forgiveness, and they took him up on, on this, this sort of thing. Uh, in a conquest culture, the, uh, the, the, the cities that were judged in this way by God, the, in the, Canaan, the people that were still residing in Canaan, had, were, see, we have good evidence. They were fully aware there was something special about the Israelites. How did this slave force escape and manage to destroy the most powerful army and the most powerful kingdom on the planet at the time? We get this when, when we get this, this preview of what's going to happen in Jericho. Uh, further, again, it's, it, would you prefer it was a flood? Would you prefer it was a natural disaster? Judgment was coming. I've got a list of things that we now know that people of Canaan that were left there um, were engaged in idolatry, incest, temple prostitution, adultery, child molestation, child sacrifice, uh, homosexuality, and bestiality. So these were particularly um, zealous sinners uh, in, in a way of, say, of, of just throwing caution to the wind where even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 not even the pagans engage in this sort of thing you know when he's scolding the Corinthian church for not doing something about a male sleeping with his mother so um, we don't hear that preached upon uh, either uh, also remember that there are all sorts of conscriptions like Wave was saying and, and qualifications put on you're to offer peace terms uh, beforehand the, there's really good evidence that the only people that would have been left in Canaan were military garrisons of people that were just resistant resilient and didn't want to go um, they weren't to go any further. So he said there's a time limitation. There's a geographic limitation. There's a d divine limitation. They're also under a theocracy. Uh, I don't think God operates in a way of asking me to go and be an agent of his justice on someone if it happens to be, uh, you know, particularly negative and it's going to require like some sort of physical altercation. That is unless someone does a miracle in God's name in front of me. So remember, there were miracles underwritten by this sort of thing, too. It wasn't like, well, we don't know if Moses is just making stuff up or he's doing a sort of a caravan run here. Um, uh, no, it's it had miracles underwriting it and had uh, God's uh, God's word in a pretty clear way of understanding what he desired going on there um, as well. So pretty tight uh, qualifiers around that sort of thing. So, again, th there's a number, I mean, there's a number of things you can say about this, but I think just keeping the conversation going and saying, I, you know, like, for example, what Wade was saying, I don't, I don't think genocide is an appropriate word. Um, you know, one of the problems with people in our culture today is they take two things that have a superficial similarity and act like they're exactly the same thing. Uh, it's just not the case. So, for example, if God is the author of life and can restore it in the afterlife, is it really, are we really, do we really have a right to say that he unfairly took a life? Genocide is usually connected to an indiscriminate murdering of everyone, 
innocence included, right? And usually in our day and age has an ethnic flavor to it. Well, Wave was just going on and saying, well, this wasn't just an ethnic flavor. It wasn't like R4 and no more. It wasn't just, well, you're not Israeli, so we're going to slaughter you, uh, regardless of your age or that, that, that sort of thing. Um, no, I, I just like I can't call God a murderer. You know, the reason murder is bad, that's an unjustified, unevidenced taking of an innocent life. Um, well, if God is the, the standard bearer of morality, right, and he's the one that gives, provides life and can restore it in the afterlife, it's his prerogative to take it when he chooses. That's a submission to the Lord. So, um, you, again, uh, we, we may not like it, but Wave also said this happens in different ways uh, to different cultures as well. So things to remember, uh, mercy's always on the table. Peace was, uh, was something, terms that were supposed to be offered by the Israelites. The idea that the likelihood of, of just wandering around innocent women and children uh, in Canaan at the time is really, really low. Uh, the, uh, that God's the author of life and can take it uh, whenever he chooses, whether you're uh, at whatever stage you're talking about, that miracles underwrote this sort of thing and that it was limited both in geography, divine command, and uh, and in uh, culture or ethnicity. So, and it doesn't have to do with just killing anyone that's non-Israeli. So, just things to remember when it comes to this. Just so you guys know, this is something our Chiathans deal with all the time. So, a lot of profs, even in our area, run the whole "Don't bring the Bible up because your God's a genocidal." Uh, megalomaniac <laughs> he also wants praise on the back end of it so um so that's the way that's presented any question or come let's go to the next slide ethan and go on down and just make sure we've uh used this book and actually had him speak here at the tr uh in some lanes in the parachurch ministries here at the church uh paul copan teaches up at palm beach atlantic if you want an extended engagement on the subject of god and genocide um uh you can't it, it can't hurt you to pick up is God a moral monster and Paul Copan himself told me that if any of you in here can't afford his book that I'll just send you the digital uh, if you you know he'd rather you be equipped to handle these conversations and he's finding this to be more and more increasingly common with skeptics um, sometimes it's a test you know somebody sees it online they go home for Christmas and they ask a family member well, what about it looks like God's just killing innocent people everywhere uh, so uh, it's something to, again to keep on the table um, uh, these are all talking points that could be framed in question format. You know, what do you know about the, the inhabitants of Canaan at the time? Um, uh, I didn't know much about it. You know, we, we spent a time of sustained study in our Sunday school class on this subject. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, is there ever a time where a, a culture stands in need of judgment? Um, what do you do with the fact that there were cultures that were even more wicked, the Ninevites were even more wicked in some ways, but God accepted their, they were repentant, God accepted their repentance at least for the time being, Jebusites as well. Uh, these are questions you can ask somebody just to kind of go, okay, ease up. Let's not, you know, I'm not sure, I, you know, you're using the word genocide. I, if God did this, this same moral standard <laughs> to the Israelites, then this isn't just about Israel and just us and nobody else. Um, uh, God, you know, his special favor. Um, you know, did you, did, have you thought about a, a context where conquest was the norm? You know, God working in a sinful, fallen world post-Adam and Eve. Uh, any question or comment uh, about this? Because we only have five minutes. It looks like we're going to shift the other two to next week, it <laughs> looks like. So uh, the, the other two, uh, again, um, slavery and, uh, and, and oppression of women are the next two. But, that, but just so you guys know, uh, if you're dealing with someone that's a, what they call a digital a uh, native or a digital citizen, somebody who is uh, has a mild screen addiction, 
which may be a lot of us in, in the 21st century. Uh, odds are they've already hit these sort of things. It used to be you'd only hit these kind of critiques about your junior year in college, maybe. Uh, but now with the advent of the Internet, um, they are put front and center uh, as clickbait on things. So um, interestingly enough, there's still the, the old school critique, which is the Bible is inconsistent and so are you. Um, but then the new one is this one, uh, a kind of a, a more aggressive shaming. Uh, the Bible's odd and strange, so don't use it as a, as, as a book that's your life book. Um, it has morally reprehensible things, so don't use it as a moral guidebook. And it has miraculous things, so what are you, some sort of a, you know, I mean, gullible moron that believes, you know, that there's a miracle around every corner. Uh, it doesn't have a, a miracle on every, in, on every page. So, uh, so, yeah, just things to keep in mind. And when it comes to the genocide question, you can tell, look, Waves had to do work on this because it's so common today. It's a very, very, very common claim. But here's the thing, too. I've told you this before. We're in a golden age of Christian scholarship. Um, there used to be just generalists that kind of played with this idea and would do, a, you know, like a, a little booklet on something. But there are in there are scholars that dedicate 25, t 10 to 25 years of their life just to handle these questions now. Uh, very, very cool. I don't know if there's any time in Christian history there's more, been more prolific, specific output with regard to um, clearing away doubt with regard to Christianity. This, it's, a, it's a golden age of Christian scholarship and availability. <laughs> <laughs>